Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Class with my great friend and co-host, Ron Baker. And folks, on today's show, we are honored to have with us from the Cato Institute, Alex Narasta. Ron, how you doing? I'm great, Ed. I always love having Cato guys. They're wickedly smart. The wicked smart, as they say in Boston. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Looking forward to having Alex on. And a, a quick shout out to my friend Kathleen Stokes, who is the one who uh, connected us with Alex. She worked on the Joe Jorgensen campaign and uh, ran ran across paths with Alex, I, I think in Michigan, if I've, if I've got that correct. But uh, maybe not. I'll have uh, a talk about that with Alex. Uh, let me get the, the bio out of the way and get right to the interview. Alex Narasta is the director of Immigration Studies and the H. I'm sorry, the Herbert A. Stiffel Center for Trade Policy Studies. His popular publications have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the Washington Post, and other major publications in the U.S. He is the co-author with Benjamin Powell of the 2020 book, Wretched Refuse, The Political Economy of Immigrations and Institutions, which is the first book on how economic institutions in receiving countries adjust to immigrations. Welcome to, to the soul of enterprise, Alex Narasta. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, first of all, Alex, congratulations. I understand you're a new dad. Well, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a new dad for the third time. For the so, third time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so um, for, first daughter. So I guess we can count that as, uh, as a big first for me. But, you know, it, it, she's a week old. So, I mean, they're all kind of the same at a week. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, well, congratulations again. That's awesome. Um, since you bring up children, <laughs> I'm going to go right to one of the, 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 the first things that I posted of yours back on Facebook and through the magic of, of logging my Facebook posts and doing a name search on it. I came up with something that you posted back in July of 2014, and it was a podcast that you did with uh, uh, the uh, Cato Daily podcast, which title was Unaccompanied Children in Limbo. I don't know if this is ringing a bell for you, Alex. Like, is it this is this topic seems to still be a problem? So, has it changed, or could you just replay that 2014 podcast and we would be good to go on it? It has changed. A, a bunch okay. has changed. The, how the government has reacted has changed significantly, and and the scale of the problem today is bigger. And I think those are the big. Um, differences. You know, back then, Congress was also just more interested in following the law and understanding what the law is. And today, there is just much less interest in that from anybody. Whether that's good or bad, I'm not sure because the law doesn't make any sense. So um, this is just a weird, uh, different place that we're that we're in right now. We seem to have a border crisis now every couple years with a lot of unaccompanied alien children who, like the name says, right, they're, they're kids who show up at the border um, without their parents, um, who are primarily from Central America. And due to the weird quirks in American law, um, the government has to accept them, put them into detention facilities, and reunite them with sponsors or other family members once they're in the United States. So it's just a really weird, odd mess of American law that has produced substantial crises along the U.S. border. And it, obviously something, and you were calling for different policies, resolutions back then. I, I assume that some of them are still still in order. Uh, and the, the question is, is why, why haven't we dealt with this if this is a constant crisis? My, my perception, and I don't want to be too cynical, is that this is a great fundraising opportunity for both sides. So that's why we don't fix immigration. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think there's also just the fact that Nobody really agrees how to fix it, right? You have one side that wants to build walls and restrict legal immigration and have a lot more enforcement. You have the other side that is sort of anti all that stuff, but doesn't really stand for much otherwise. 
<laughs> I mean, liberals and, and my Democratic friends, when it comes to immigration, they say they want to treat immigrants humanely, and they say they want to increase legal immigration to the United States. But as soon as they get in, they don't really move any, anywhere in that, in that direction. So this is one of the rare issues, I think, where Republicans actually mean what they say and believe what they say, and Democrats don't. And this is one of the few issues where I wish it were reversed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, 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 thank you for that. That's a, I, I wanted to address that first. It's obviously currently in the news and we're dealing with it. But I'm going to take you a little bit back now. Uh, we've, we've got five minutes left in this first segment, roughly. And um, one of the things I, I, I've run for office before as a libertarian and this immigrant, I'm in Texas, so this does does tend to come up. And one of the things that I've come across is that immigration is actually not mentioned in the Constitution at all. The word naturalization is used. But naturalization, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the process of becoming a citizen, whereas that immigration is the entry into the country. So in my view, especially if you're a strict constitutionalist, shouldn't that mean that immigration is really an, uh, an issue for individual states to discern how to handle and what would be wrong with going back to that? And then just to let the federal government decide who is and is not a citizen. If you're a strict constructionist or an originalist, I think that's really the only correct interpretation of the Constitution on this issue. The federal government got total control of immigration in 1889 and a court decision uh, called Che Chin Ping. And there was about uh, Chinese immigration and one of the points made in that case was that the feds don't have any power over immigration. It's not an enumerated power. It's not in Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution. That's where Congress's powers are enumerated. And the court said that, well, controlling immigration is sort of a, a necessary power for a sovereign government, sort of inherent to sovereignty. And they incorrectly read a lot of scholars and legal scholars who don't actually say that, but the Supreme Court pretended they said that and said, oh yeah, you see like all these legal scholars agree with us um, and here you go. Um, Congress has unlimited power in this. They can do whatever they want. And that means of course that they can violate any amendment, uh, any Bill of Rights, any portion of the Bill of Rights when setting immigration law. It's what's called plenary power which means Congress has total sole authority. And part of that sole authority means they can also give it to somebody else. And they've given a lot of that authority to the president of the United States to basically regulate immigration law. So like I wrote a piece recently with my colleague, David Beer, where we made the point that there really is no immigration law anymore. It's just a bunch of executive orders and executive actions because now the president thinks to the Supreme Court, um, both that ruling in 1889 as well as a recent ruling in 2018 in the Trump v. Hawaii decision basically said the president can stop anybody from coming to the country at any time. He just has to wave his magic wand and he can do it. And that basically means you don't have any immigration law. It's basically, it's all over. Now, maybe that's good or bad, right? Because immigration law is a titanic mess. Like, certain rules are bad and probably worse than, like, arbitrary authority. But it's not obviously worse. And this is the situation that we're in. It's a disaster. Um, and that's where we are right now. So when people say we need to follow the law, we need to enforce immigration law, I sort of like chuckle because I'm like, there is no immigration law. It's just executive dictats. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, correct I me mean, again if I'm wrong, and I'm, I'm sure I heard this from you on a various podcast that I listened to, but, but Canada does, does do immigration by province, correct? Or, or there, at least there is some authority over immigration by province, and it seems to work fairly well for them. Yeah, Canada, Australia have these regional systems. So in Canada, it's called the Provincial Nomination Program, and Australia is sort of a state-based program. And what these countries have is they have sort of two, two tracks of immigration. Uh, you have one where it's regulated by the federal government, and then you have another one where provinces are allowed to design their own systems and on top of the federal government. So in Canada, it's a system where uh, it's basically economic migration. So whatever the states decide they need more, whether they need more sort of entrepreneurs or more textile workers or software engineers, they can create more visas for these people. And the feds, you know, sort of regulate it a little bit, but it's largely up to the provinces to figure that out. Um, it seems like something that we could very easily copy in the United States, actually, probably easier than Canada does it. 
Uh, there's been a bill introduced by Representative Curtis, who's a Republican from Utah, and then Senator Ron Johnson, who's a Republican from Wisconsin, uh, to basically create this system. It's a bill that you know we basically wrote for them. So it's an excellent bill. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it would basically create this type of system in the United States. And states don't have to participate if they don't want to. Um, but once these workers are in, they can live and work in these states and, you know, add to the economy if the states want them to. Uh, and if they don't want to, then the states don't have to have them. So I think it's sort of a middle ground approach, you know, allows states like Texas or California to get more migrants if they want them and allow states like Alabama and Mississippi that don't really want them to not participate. So it seems like a an improvement. Yeah, I, and I just it, I think it was it may, it's a much better system from my perspective because like I said it, it gets local control back to, you know, where where they're needed. If you need more agricultural workers, you let in more agricultural workers. It just makes makes so much more sense. I think there's two things from Canada I think we should import, maybe more, but at least two. One is their immigration policy and two is the privatization of the of the air traffic control. So that would be both things that I think they, they do better than us. Uh, but we are up against our first break. Want to remind listeners that they can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with uh, Alex Narasta, the Director of Immigration and Trade at the Cato Institute. And Alex, I grew up on The Ultimate Resource, The Economic Consequences of Immigration by Julian Simon. Profound influence on me. George Gilder, who said Castro set out to build the world's greatest city, and he did so in Miami, Florida. (laughs) Uh, These were all pro-immigration. I mean, Without immigration, we wouldn't have been able to build the bomb and end the war. We wouldn't have got Hollywood. According to what I've read, half the companies in Silicon Valley have been founded by immigrants. Is there an Einstein effect? I mean, you hear this argument, or at least I used to hear this argument from the right, that, hey, we get one Einstein in, one incredible founder, a Google, Sergey Brand, something like that. 
and it, it pays for a lot of costs that immigration may bring with it. Is that still so, talked about? No, unfortunately, <laughs> it's not uh, talked about nearly as much as it should. We, it, it's hard to identify who's going to be that brilliant. I mean, it's impossible to identify who's going to sure. be that brilliant entrepreneur or inventor or scientist before they actually make their discoveries or build their companies. Um, but I think what, what's pretty clear, one of the things we know is that people who want to leave behind their home countries and set out on their own is in and of itself an entrepreneurial act. You know, to leave behind your family, to leave behind maybe the native language that you learned, to leave behind the culture that you grew up with, and to go to another country is something that requires energy and, and ambition and forethought and all of these other characteristics that brilliant scientists and entrepreneurs possess in abundance and need to succeed in their endeavors. So I think what it is, immigration is just this great sorting mechanism, sort of a, where the people who are, and, and lots of ambitious people, of course, don't move, right? Don't immigrate. But of those who do, I think they're just disproportionately more successful for all of these reasons, because it's such a hard thing to do. It's such a big change. And only those who are the most ambitious are really going to set out and do it. And, and not that college is the only way to be, become an entrepreneur. In fact, I think most great entrepreneurs probably didn't go to college. But that said, the people that are here in college and graduate, shouldn't we make it easier for them to, to stay here? seems like we make it really difficult. We do. I mean, just to put it in perspective, of those who are 25 years and older in the U.S. who have a college degree, um, uh, those who are immigrants account for about a third of them. And 29% of all STEM workers, um, you know, are foreign born in the United States. And this is something where, you know, I, I agree with you, college isn't the end all be all, right? But a lot of people who have these skills, who are engineers, who are scientists, who are doctors, mathematicians, who work in the STEM fields, a lot of them do go to, to university because the U.S. still has the best universities in the world. And we make it very difficult for them to stay here legally. Um, there are a few programs that allow them to. There's something called OPT. Uh, optional practical training where they can work for up to about 36 months in the U.S. Uh, legally. And then there's this thing called the H-1B visa. It's a temporary visa for skilled workers. Uh, it's a maximum of six years, uh, but you can get a green card off of it. The problem is these visas are numerically limited. The H-1B is only uh, 85,000 people a year and only 20,000 from American universities can really get it every year. And the number of people who can get green cards is limited at about, in terms of workers, at about 70,000 workers per year. So, I mean, you do the math. Uh, 85,000 or so come in on H-1Bs, and then you've got about 70,000 for the workers each year who get a green card. So they move from the H-1B, they come here as a student, they get an H-1B, and then they wait in the H-1B line for a green card for, in the case of some Indian immigrants today, it's estimated going to be about 200 years until they get a green card. Which is, of course, like, it's a joke. Um, it's like, it might as well be a trillion years at that point. And so we make it way too difficult for skilled people to come to this country. Right. And then when you get into the whole illegal crossing and the whole, oh, they're taking our jobs at the low end um, and they're driving down wages for the unskilled worker, I, I, I look at the stuff and, yeah, I might might say, yeah, there's some effect there, but isn't there a grand fallacy here, the lump of labor fallacy? There's only so many jobs. That is the great fallacy, right? It's the idea that there's only so much work to do. So if you have more people doing that work, it's going to get spread out amongst more people. And the thing is our capacity to do work, like what I want to hire people to do at $100 an hour is very different from what I want to hire people to do at $10 an hour. Like there are a ton more things that are open to us. Um, but also just thinking beyond that, right, immigration increases the supply of labor in the economy. It also increases the demand for labor in the economy because these are people who buy things, who consume things here. Um, even if they send their money back home, the money returns to the United States in the form of American exports. So it's, you know, immigration wages are determined by supply and demand. But most of the time, when people talk about immigration, they just talk about the supply part and they forget about the demand. 
And as you know from economics, you need both, of course, to set a price. You know, it's like asking which blade of a pair of scissors cuts a piece of paper. It's like nonsense. It's a nonsense question. Like, you need both. And you need supply and demand to figure out the effect on price. Right. You know, Alex, one of the things that I've learned from Thomas Sowell is in economics, there's no solutions. There's only trade-offs. And Thomas Sowell is not an open immigration economist. I'm sure you're familiar with some of his work. He takes it to task and he said, you can't talk about immigration in general because there's no such thing. And he kind of takes you around the world and proves this um, and basically says, you know, there are no solutions to this. There's only trade-offs. The best economists can do is ask politicians the questions that they're going to need to answer. What's your take on Sowell's work? So I think Sowell is one of the best explainers of basic economic ideas out there. I think his book, Basic Economics, is wonderful. And it sections of that should be read by sort of undergraduate econ majors. And I think his book, Knowledge and Decisions, has uh, the first half of his book is like, it's a marvelous book about principal agent problems. But in terms of his points about immigration, I think he proves too much. I mean, if we can't say anything about immigration in general, then what can we say about workers in general, or capital in general, or these other factors of production in general that Sol, you know, rightly spends a lot of time talking about. Now, it's true, you know, some, you know, immigrants from Mexico have lower education levels than immigrants from India. Like, that's absolutely true. That is a fact. But that doesn't mean that we can't talk about the general effect of immigrants on the labor market. We can't talk about how immigrants increase the supply of labor and demand. And it doesn't mean we can't talk about the uh, inelasticity or the elasticity of demand curves. So I think Sol makes some good points, right? But I think he proves too much and goes a little too far at some of these times when he talks about the economics of, um, of immigration. I got sort of in a, um, he, he didn't respond, but I wrote several pieces in response to some of the claims that he made a few times about immigration back in 2013. And he, um, you know, is smart and he's a thoughtful man, but I just don't think he's gone very deep into into this subject I, I would love to have a sit down chat with them and, <laughs> and ask like just specifically like okay we know these things about labor economics we know how they work we know how the system works we know that immigrants increase supply of labor increase demand the net effect is slightly positive empirical facts abound on this the results are basically uniform the benefits of liberalizing immigration are tremendous for the immigrants for native-born americans for world gdp what could possibly be on the cost side that would be equal to this? Well, I think and, he would say, and I don't want to try and speak for him. We did have <laughs> him on the show, but, and we did, and I did ask him this question about immigration. Uh, but he, one thing he writes about, and basically it's, it's in his book, Applied Economics. If you want to see where he really goes in, and he's got a scholarly tril- trilogy as well that gets into the whole immigration and migration and culture that's the cultures one right it's like cultures and migrations yeah Yeah, absolutely but he said this he said to equate human immigration with trade he said when you buy a toyota and a toyota crosses the border it doesn't have little toyotas and it doesn't bring a culture and it doesn't demand the, the new country to accept its language and it comes with its own culture which affects behavior it's not simply a movement of people and I think he's also worried about the cultural impact, it, the crime, and that's part of it. But the, just the, the culture, kind of the same point that Samuel P. Huntington makes. And I wanted to ask you about his work as well, because he's brought up some of these cultural and spiritual issues that don't really relate to the GDP and some of the economic things that we normally talk about around this issue. Yeah. So in the language of economics, um, Culture is endogenous. And what that means is that culture affects everything and culture is also affected by everything. So culture is not just like a random set of beliefs that are passed down from the past that all descendants, of course, believe in, right? They're cultural practices. Uh, Gary um, um, uh, Doug North, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist, wrote that um, culture is the partial solution to the frequently encountered problems of the past, right? So if you have a problem in the past, I'll just use an example of say young people having a lot of children out of wedlock. 
and you don't have access to prophylactics, well, cultural norms will develop that say you cannot have sexual intercourse when you're uh, until you're married to try to prevent that. And then as soon as prophylactics are invented and widespread and cheap, those cultural norms, they might stick around for a little bit, but they're going to fade away very rapidly. And what we see is cultural norms that might be useful to surviving or thriving in a place like Mexico or India uh, or Bangladesh. Once these folks arrive to the United States, they fade away surprisingly rapidly because culture is not, you know, culture is about trade-offs too. Um, and, and if you come to a place like the United States, which is very individualistic compared to these other places, then you are not, it's just going to be very costly for you to hold on to these cultural norms. So to give you an example, uh, I have a friend who's Bangladeshi and he immigrated here at the age of five. And Bangladesh is sort of a very communitarian, collectivist uh, Muslim society. And the way that you get ahead in a society like that is by showing everybody that you're sacrificing to the group, but sacrificing as little as possible. <laughs> so it's basically, right. Right. you know, it's like, like it's the reason why communes <laughs> fail, right? But you come to the United States where there isn't that kind of cultural pressure to force you to actually contribute to the group because you know, there's not 50 million Bangladeshis living in a small area in the United States that can force that. There's no law that can force you to do anything like that. Then what happens is almost immediately, every Bangladeshi immigrant is like, oh, I'm going to show how much I care to people by talking about it. But I'm not going to actually do anything. And because there's no law or custom wider than this that can actually force me to, almost immediately that cultural norm collapses into nothing. Because the incentive is for everybody, it's self-defeating. Um, and you can, uh, you know, take this out um, uh, and take a look at religious practices. You can take a look at um, naming conventions, what people name their children. You can take a look at ling linguistic conviction conventions um, in the United States. Um, you know, immigrants today are more likely to learn English than immigrants were 100 years ago. And it's not because immigrants today, like, hate their native languages more, right? Or because they're less culturally attached to their native language or some other nonsense like that, it's because it pays more to learn English today than it did 100 years ago. So much more that the um, um, uh, economist uh, Ethan Lewis at Dartmouth said, you know, a, a high school dropout in the United States learning English increases his wages by 20%. Right. So whether you're going to hold on to that language, whether you're going to pass it down to generations, I mean, it's it's a choice with trade offs like Gustavo Ariano, who is one of the funniest writers, I think, out there sort of about a Mexican American culture, said, uh, you know, his parents were illegal immigrants who worked in the farm and they wanted him to learn Spanish. And Gustavo said, so I speak Spanish. OK, not very good, but with a thick accent. And I want my kids to learn Spanish, which means they won't speak Spanish at all. Uh, and, <laughs> and that's just, that's the way it worked. I mean, millions of people in the U.S. used to speak Hungarian, Polish, German, etc. as first language and learned it in the United States. Right. It's, you're going to be hard-pressed to find anybody. It's not because those cultures are weak. It's not because cultural practices have changed. It's because it just doesn't pay anymore. Culture is not special. It's just the things that we do to adapt to the world, and if the world changes, we don't need those cultural adaptations anymore, and new cultures arise. Sure. And like you say, our culture is so ubiquitous and overwhelming in this country. How can you not adapt to it? But uh, and, Alex and, is, and globally, and globally, right, by right, the way, right. right? You can call it pre-assimilation. Sure. Like, people who come here today from around the world know stuff about the United States that people 100 years ago had no idea about. They watch our movies, they listen to our music, they watch our TV shows, they see American inventions, use American products every day. Our norms are spreading around the world rapidly. So there's pre-assimilation going on. <laughs> I like that. Well, Alex, this is great. Unfortunately, we're up against our breaks. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at barrisage.com. Check us out at patreon.com slash tsoe to subscribe to our bonus episodes. And that uh, Patreon site is now sponsored by 90 Minds. Find a mind at 90 Minds. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. 
Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we're back on the Soul of Enterprise with Alex Narasta. Alex, great segment with Ron. I was I was waiting for him to spring the soul on you when we were prepping for the show earlier. He, he said he was going to do that, so I was really interested in your answer. But I'd like it to take you through uh, some of the cliches that are still out there. Um, the, the first one: illegal immigrants are by definition criminals. Not true. Um- <laughs> Uh, being illegally present in the United States is not a criminal offense. It is a civil infraction. Um, crossing the border illegally is a misdemeanor, right? But as far as we can tell, the majority of illegal immigrants actually crossed legally and overstayed their visas. Even so, it's a misdemeanor, and it's not a serious misdemeanor because who's to vet them? Um, you know, it's one of these sort of like government, you violated our paper statute that we pass to regulate labor markets, it is a crime. It's like, okay, I guess, like, it's, it's by definition a crime because there's a jail penalty, but other than, like, a real crime, no free society would come up with that because there's no victim. Um, and then on top of that, if you take a look at real crimes, right, crimes where there is a victim, um, illegal immigrants are much less likely to be convicted or even arrested for those crimes than native-born Americans are. And the best thing is, I'm going to compliment the hell out of Texas. There are, you know, criminal justice systems are run on the state level, and 49 states do not track illegal immigration statuses or immigration status at all in the criminal justice system after the point of arrest, with the exception of Texas, which tracks all of it, which is a great state to study, because it's a border state, Second highest illegal immigrant population. Uh, you have a Republican government that has a reputation of enforcing criminal laws. <laughs> so there's no like, there's nothing you can really say to say that illegal immigrants are getting off in Texas, right? And what we find is that illegal immigrants in Texas are about half as likely to be convicted of criminal offenses as native-born Americans are. Um, and even if you go down to specific crimes like homicide, uh, property crimes, etc., other violent crimes. Um, to varying extents, much less likely than native-born Americans to be convicted or even arrested for these offenses in the first place. So this is something that goes back, as far as we can tell, immigrants, whether illegal or illegal, much less crime-prone than native-born Americans. That was, you anticipated my next question, so I can go on to the, the <laughs> third question, which is, I lo- this is my favorite, uh, this is my all-time favorite, and Ron alluded to it earlier. Illegal immigrants simultaneously take away jobs and have just come here to collect welfare. <laughs> like, That's right. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Um, what, so just a few things, right? Like the American welfare state is very large. It is mostly designed to help the elderly through Medicare and Social Security. The means-tested portion for the poor, um, illegal immigrants are ineligible for virtually all of those benefits. Now, there are a handful of exceptions. You know, emergency Medicaid is an exception. You go to the hospital, 
you're wounded. If you're pregnant, you can get some Medicaid. And if you're an illegal immigrant kid in school, then you can get uh, like subsidized lunches. Uh, but in terms of like the totality of the welfare state, you're talking about access to roughly one to two percent <laughs> of the welfare state, right? Um, now, I'm in favor of building a higher wall around the welfare state instead of around the country, excluding all non-citizens from welfare benefits. I'd like to ideally get rid of welfare, but if we can't do that, let's at least exclude non-citizens. But when you take a look at the evidence, illegal immigrants have very little access to it. And when you sort of zoom out to immigration overall, immigrants are, depending on how you measure, 20 to 40% less likely to use welfare benefits than native-born Americans are. And if we had sort of the, um, you know, immigrant use of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid rates, um, if they were the same rates as native-born Americans use them, the welfare state would be substantially smaller, somewhere around like 15, 20% smaller in total. And, that, and that's, you know, that's, not, that's nothing to sneeze at, right? We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in potential savings from there. Uh, and one of the most interesting things is I, you know, I want the welfare, I want Social Security to be privatized. I want to get rid of the welfare state. But immigrants pay more into the entitlement programs than they take out. They pay more into Medicare and more into Social Security than they take out. So the interesting thing is if you really want to sustain these programs, the only real way to do it for multi-decades is to let in tens of millions of young immigrants <laughs> and, uh, so that they pay into these transitional gains traps uh, programs because we all know Social Security and Medicare work, right? You pay younger people basically pay for the elderly. So we need more younger people and this is one guaranteed way to do it. So if you want to preserve the welfare state, what you need is more immigration. It's not going to kill it. So, so wait, there's not a box with my name in it that has all my money that I've been sending in? I, wait, I thought that... No, so, but I, this this is great stuff. What I have heard, and th this is kind of interesting to me, the argument. Well, they they come and they use our schools, and I'm like, well, so how how about educate? Isn't educating them a good thing? Because then they go on and, like you said, produce more stuff here. So I don't, I never quite understood. And and what percentage of 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 the school system is illegal immigrants? It's not that tremendous. I can't imagine. Anyway. Yeah, it's not. Um, so the illegal immigrant population right now in the U.S. is about 3 to 4% of the total population estimated. And the school population, if you include their native-born kids as well as the illegal immigrant kids themselves, because if you're born to an illegal immigrant in the U.S., you're an American citizen, it's probably like 6 to 7% total. But that's going to be disproportionate, right? In some areas, like I'm from Southern California, um, in the town next to where I grew up in Oxnard, it's probably more, it's probably north of 10%. If you go into like Nebraska, it's probably like, I mean, you know, one out of a thousand, right, uh, in terms of that. Um, but according to a Supreme Court decision in 1982 called Plyler v. Doe, um, states cannot kick out illegal immigrants or the children of illegal immigrants from public schools. And that's been the law of the land since 1982. And... If you want to make sure that illegal immigrants assimilate and their kids assimilate and integrate into American culture, this is probably one way that makes it a little bit easier. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of public education. I'm a big fan of privatizing education or at least moving to a voucher or some kind of system like that. Uh, but basically all the costs of public education that are borne by illegal immigrants are the costs borne by like anybody else in the school system. So I went to public school in California. For 12 years. I don't live and work in California. I don't pay state taxes in California. I'm much more of a burden to California than an illegal immigrant who went to school <laughs> there and then stayed and worked there because I don't pay any taxes to that state. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we got about one minute to the break. One, one of the things that when I went again, when I was running for office, we often talked about is that and to, to allude to Texas again, we have a, a, a we don't have a state income tax, but we do have a sales tax, which People who are legal or illegal pay into that system, whereas Arizona does not. They have an income tax, and that's where they fund it. And yet, the, and so there's clearly, I think, more of an immigration problem in Arizona because of the state tax law. Would you agree with that as well? Absolutely. I used to actually give a series of lectures to state conservative groups saying, if you're worried about illegal immigrants consuming benefits and not paying taxes, get rid of your state income taxes and replace them with either sales taxes, property taxes, user fees, or other taxes like that that you just can't avoid paying. 
So that's that's the way to do it. You know, I, I mean, I want to get rid of progressive income taxes and lower those other taxes as much as possible, right? But mm-hmm. if you're worried about illegal immigrants not paying their fair share, go to that kind of system and you will cover most of them. And that's probably one of the reasons why California, which relies like overwhelmingly on capital gains taxes as well as like uh, 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 progressive income taxes, why they probably have sort of uh, worse outcomes when it comes to the fiscal effects of illegal immigration compared to Texas, which has higher revenue over expenditures. So illegal immigrants in Texas actually reduce the deficit, the state deficit, and that's it, according to the state comptroller's office in the state of Texas, which studies this every couple of years. Yeah, yeah, no, great stuff, Alex. And we're up against our last break. I uh, want to remind you, you can contact us at thesoulofenterprise.com. That's the website where we have the show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE will take you to our rating system. We love to not only see you rate the show, but also leave us a review, which we will read on the air. But uh, right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise welcome back everybody we're here with alex narasta talking about immigration and alex um samuel p huntington makes this point which i find interesting he says you, you hear the partial truth, he calls it, that we're a nation of immigrants. But he draws a distinction between settlers who form new societies and then immigrants who come later who are attracted to those societies. How do you see that? Or how do you think about that? I think that's largely true. What he's talking about, uh, about the settlers is called the founder effect, also known as the doctrine of first effective settlement. Um, and I think that works for a small number of the people who've come to the United States over its history. You know, I think a lot of the initial settlers sort of in the 13 colonies and some of the folks who moved west as, as pioneers, I think that describes them. But in terms of like the total number of people who have come to the United States over its history, the roughly 100 million or so uh, people have come to these shores, that probably describes like 1% of them. Maybe two, right? Because you found these societies, then you move west. Only a small fraction of them move west. Most of them settle sort of in the areas that are already settled. So, I mean, it's 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 sort of a, a, a point. It's, uh, I think, a true point that there is a distinction. But I'm not sure how much of a difference sort of it really makes. And, and I don't know how much of a – because I, I would look at, let's say, like Italian immigrants who came in the 1920s, right, who went to New York – who didn't move to, uh, you know, till for fertile soil in the American West because the American West was closed then. And they seem to have assimilated and integrated really well into our civilization, right? I, and added to it, like pizza. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, and great, I mean, 
not to trivialize it, right? But um, so I, I think it's true in a sense, right? There, there is a distinction between settlers and immigrants. Like settlers create new societies, create new institutions, or import them from abroad and change them to their new environments. And then immigrants join these later on. Um, and settlers have a disproportionate impact on those institutions because the people who found them initially, I mean, they just have a much greater impact, right? Like the founders of the Constitution have a much greater impact on American law and society and institutions and say like president trump and joe biden or any other president would later later that um but i um but in terms of how it really affects and changes american society going forward um immigrants add to it but i'm not sure i've seen that distinction made and then i'm sure uh, and then my question is always like and and no? <laughs> oh, so yeah friedman's question so what uh <laughs> You know, I know you're a California boy, Southern. I'm Northern California, born and raised here as well. And one of the things that frustrates me about this whole topic is the caricatures and the cliches thrown around, like we're a nation of immigrants, or how do you how do you specifically answer this? I'm sure you've heard this a million times. If you want to see the effects of illegal immigration, look at California, a red state up through, what, 94, 98? And now look at it. It's complete economic basket case uh, in, in a lot of respects. What's your response to that? I have several responses Good. to that. So first <laughs> Educate me. Yeah, so first response is um, California was never as red as these people make it out the same. You take a look at the California legislature post-World War II. There's basically like four years when it was Republican. <laughs> post-World War II. It did vote for Republican in uh, the majority, the vast majority of uh, presidential elections, but not like on the gubernatorial level, state senators were, senators were mixed, etc. And what happened was um, in 1994, Pete Wilson, Republican governor, up until this point, governors in California basically split the Hispanic vote down the middle. Republicans got about 50%. Democrats got about 50%. 1994, Pete Wilson comes in, has a tough re-election year. He decides to blame a lot of the state's problems on illegal immigrants. And a lot of his supporters, not, not so careful about it, they sort of blame all immigrants. And what happened is the Hispanic vote went 75% for the Democrats that year. And afterwards, it's been about, about that. And so I would say, like, Pete Wilson decided to take a point of time in California when the Hispanic voting population was increasing significantly, decided, hey, how can I turn these people against us systematically? Figured out a way to do it, and that has been sort of the pattern since then. And I would contrast it with a state like Texas. Texas and California have Hispanic percentages of the population almost identical. It's about 40% in each state. The Texas GOP, though, on the state level, has courted Hispanics, has said you're natural conservatives, you're part of our coalition, we're going to listen to you, we're not going to blame you for all the state's problems. When we're concerned about immigration in Texas, we're going to focus on the border, which everybody's concerned about. We're not going to focus on kicking kids out of school or any of these other things that Pete Wilson tried to do in 1994 uh, or after, after the election in 1994. Um, and it's been a much more successful program. Like I don't think Hispanics are natural... Democrats any more than they're natural Republicans, right? They're people like anybody else. And the one thing we know about people in politics is that people are not going to vote for a party if they think that party hates them. And the, the, the oppression, right? The Democrats are not good to immigrants by any means. Like, I don't want to come off as saying that. But compared to the Republicans, <laughs> like, <laughs> my God, uh, the difference, like, you'd have to be... Like I talked to my conservative friends about this. Like I, I'm not, I'm not uh, an evangelical Christian, but I can I tell my friends, like, listen, who, who are? I'm like, is there any doubt in your mind which political party dislikes evangelical Christians more? No, no doubt. Well, that is that feeling is the same feeling that a lot of immigrants and a lot of Hispanic Americans feel when they listen to the Republican Party is the way that you feel when you hear the Democratic Party. Right. Alex, if you were in charge of immigration, how, how, how would it work? What would you do? I know you'd refuse that job, but <laughs> if, if, if you were in charge. I would refuse it. I don't know if I'd refuse it. Uh, okay. I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would try to make it so that that job wouldn't exist by the time I'm done. Um, and then I can go to the private sector and make more money. But what I would do is I would say um, – Anybody who is convicted of a violent or property offense 
anybody who is a suspected or actual national security threat, those who have serious communicable, communicable diseases are not allowed to come to the United States. Everyone else can come here to live and work and eventually, if they want to, become a citizen if they want to. It's sort of a return to American immigration policy around the year of 1875 to 1881, which is prior to the Chinese Exclusion Act, but after a few of these other restrictions I mentioned were passed. Um, I don't think that the, 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 the burden of denying an American the right to deal with an immigrant as that American sees fit and the right of the immigrant to deal with that American as they see fit on U.S. soil, uh, the burden of denying those rights needs to rest on the government and they need to give a good reason. And the reason needs to be individual to the people involved. And, and so I would like to move toward a system where we treat immigration like we treat criminal law or like we treat contract law or like we treat all the other wonderful aspects of our Anglo-Saxon legal heritage, which is we treat people as individuals, not as groups. And there are only a few categories of people based on the things that they have actually done <laughs> where we put restrictions on them. Um, and that's it. Excellent. Well, Alex, thank you so much. This has been an honor to be able to talk with you. Thank you so much for appearing on the Solo Enterprise. Ed, what do we have coming up next week? Next week, Ron, we have Leah Power from the Institute of Canadian Advertisers to talk to us about her work. I think it's the Institute of Communication Agencies, actually. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. So, yeah. Well, looking forward to it. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage. Transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's noon Pacific. But in the meantime, please feel free to visit us on the website at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.